Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome our guests, A.J. Sidransky, the author of Incident at San Miguel, and Miriam Abrahams, whose family story is the basis of this historical fiction novel. A.J. Sidransky writes about ordinary people faced with extraordinary situations and events. Genres include mystery, thriller, and historical fiction. His work has been described as a mystery wrapped in history and tied in a bow with a little romance. His books include Forgiving Maximo Rothman, Forgiving Stephen Redman, Forgiving Mariella Camacho, and The Interpreter, Incident at San Miguel, a thriller set during the Cuban Revolution, is his newest work and was released in May. AJ's short stories have appeared in anthologies, magazines, and e-zines. He lives in Upper Manhattan with his wife. Miriam Abrahams was born in Havana, Cuba in 1961, raised in Brooklyn and currently lives in Long Beach after 27 years in the five towns on Long Island. She's a graduate of Brooklyn College, a wife and mother of three and grandmother of two. Miriam is fluent in Spanish and Hebrew. She is a longtime volunteer book reviewer for the Jewish Book Council and former Hadassah NASA One Region One Book Coordinator, a certified yoga instructor for 13 years. She is a lifelong avid reader and a slice of life essayist. So AJ and Miriam, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm excited to speak with you about this very um, compelling and unusual book and and your collaboration, which which gave birth to it. So let's start with AJ. So for our listeners who haven't yet read it, would you just give us a brief synopsis of Incident at San Miguel? Sure, sure. First of all, I'd like to thank you for inviting us on today. And I, I'm really delighted to be here, as I know Miriam is as well. Um, so I should say, you know, up front that, uh, which Miriam will speak a little more about, uh, a lot of the sort of the, the, the rhythm and cadence of this novel is based on uh, Miriam's own family's experience a, a, in Cuba during the revolution. So um, Incident at San Miguel is set at the end of 1958, beginning of 1959 in Havana, Cuba. Okay. It's the story of two brothers uh, who are Cuban and also happen to be Jewish, Aaron and Moises Colon, and they find themselves on opposite sides of the Cuban Revolution. Aaron is a, an attorney. Uh, he's a practicing attorney, works for the National Bank of Cuba, and he is in favor of social change, but he would like to see that happen within the, uh, the system. 
His brother, Moises, his younger brother, is actually a communist. He's a, he's a card-carrying communist, and he is a member of the revolutionary forces that are about to take control of the army. And not incidentally, he is well up the ladder in, in that organization. Their parents uh, immigrated from Poland uh, in the late 1920s, and they came to Poland, uh, not the United States, because of changes in immigration law in the United States, and they, they made a life there. They, they were part of a community which was 15,000 strong at the time of the revolution. The, um, the, the, the novel poses a question as to, you know, what will we do for those we love? And early on, uh, there is an incident which ref is referred to as the incident at San Miguel throughout the book, which involves the revolutionaries trying to release someone from uh, house arrest in a suburb of Havana. And the Moises character is involved in this, and he, you know, some things go wrong with this, and the government is on to him. He secretly, while in hiding, appeals to his brother to help him and to help one of the other revolutionaries, who's also his girlfriend, and uh, to help them to avoid the police, which, uh, through, by the skin of his teeth, Aaron is able to do this. He makes a decision to help his brother. Despite what might happen to him and his entire family if the Batista regime uh, were to find out that he did help his brother. A month later, Castro takes Havana and the Cuban revolution is successful. Now the, um, the, you know, the shoe is on the other foot. Now Aron and his father, who is a, uh, he's a, he manufactures leather goods and shoes, they are, uh, they're under the scrutiny of the new government, of the communist government. But it's, it is now Moises who's in a position of power within that government. The first couple, uh, half or so of the book tells the story of the deteriorating situation for them in Cuba in those first couple of years after the revolution to the point where they really, uh, Aaron realizes he has to leave Cuba. And the, the next section talks, uh, you know, sort of tells the story of how he got out of Cuba a lot okay, of let's not gives. let's not give the whole book away. We, okay, we, all right. Uh, uh, let me let me mention one last thing. The rest, okay. the, book, the rest of the book has to do with their reunion many many years later. Right. So for, so that's that's the basic outline of the book. Yes, thank you. And and as I say, it's it's very riveting. Um, we're going to um, unpack it a little uh, later and talk about. Um, fiction and and reality and 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 things like that but I I, I want to ask you Miriam um, since the book is based on your family's story would you tell us how you came to have AJ write this because sure. in your bio it seems that you are a writer yourself so I'm just curious how that came about Okay, and again, thanks for having us oh, for this. My pleasure. Um, so yeah, I have written slice of life essays. I've been published in Tablet and the local Nassau Herald and mm -hmm. a couple of other places, uh, but basically just for essays um, about my family's trips and including to Cuba, to Israel, to Puerto Rico, um, pieces about my family and culture in my family. So I had interviewed my parents at length and I had written copious notes and typed them up and tried to write a version of 
I don't know, I'm putting in air quotes, my father's memoir. He wanted me to write his memoir, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> which isn't really possible to write someone else's memoir, um, as I found, because I would ask him questions and he didn't want to really tell me everything I wanted to know, or he didn't know a lot of things, he didn't remember. It, it became a little difficult to get information from him. There were things he didn't want to remember himself. So I worked with what I could, and then I kind of let it go for a while. In the meantime, I had, I had been um, reviewing books for the Jewish book world for a bunch of years as a volunteer reviewer. And somehow I came across, I was either assigned or requested to review AJ's book his first novel. And I, I loved it. I really identified with the parts of the book that had to do with uh, the DR, the Dominican Republic, the Latino community in Washington Heights and things like that. I found a lot of it spoke to me. And uh, we got to meet. He enjoyed my review, which is, was very positive. <laughs> And I guess he got in touch with me. I don't remember exactly, but we ended up meeting up a few times and talking about our lives. And I I realized he really understood a lot as a grandson of Holocaust survivors. He knew about emigration and immigration. And my family certainly had gone through its share of that. And he spoke Spanish because he's very connected to the Dominican Republic. And I asked him, or he was interested in my family story. We began talking about it and I told him I had about 70 or 80 pages of interviews and writings I'd done, but that I didn't really know what to do with it. I'm not, I had never written a book. I'm not trained that way. I was a computer programmer in my past life. Mm -hmm. Um, And although I enjoy writing, I, I didn't know how to go about writing a book at all. So he asked me if he, if we could talk about him possibly turning it into a fictional account rather than a memoir type thing. And then he met my family, he met my parents, he interviewed them at length and it went on from there. Of mm-hmm. course, um, it was disturbed by the pandemic. So of things course. took a back seat for a while. And I was willing to help him with editing, with anything I could to get the story out, even though it was going to be a fictional version. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, AJ, what was it about Miriam's story uh, that spoke to you so much that you wanted to write a book about it? I, I would imagine lots of people tell you they have stories that would make great books you know what what was it about Miriam's story let me address that first of all let me say that I adore her parents so that really helped okay once I met her parents I'm like yeah I definitely want to tell these people story it's it's just marvelous all right so um as you mentioned when you read my bio I write about ordinary people faced with extraordinary events. So, I, you know, not, not to put myself on the same uh, shelf with um, you know, Herman Woke. Uh, not, I, a bad, not a bad shelf to be. <laughs> who I actually met once, and it's a, it's a very funny story. Really, uh, he was from, he lived in Great Neck. 
Okay, so I'm going to make a very, very quick story. So I was in business with a guy named Harry Skydell years and years ago in the real estate business. And Harry got married and he was always talking about Uncle Herman. And I went to the wedding and he says, I want to introduce you to Uncle Herman. And I didn't know that Uncle Herman was Herman Woke. And he mm -hmm. walked me up to Herman Woke and says, this is Uncle Herman. I said, you're Herman Woke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. So um, anyway, back, back to this. Um, the, the story that was presented to me by Miriam's parents and Miriam was exactly what I like. It's a story of ordinary people faced with extraordinary events and how they rise to that occasion. There were also elements of this story that, that carried tremendous drama. Now, my first novel, uh, Forgiving Maximo Rothman, is set partially in Washington Heights and partially, which is in Upper Manhattan, for those of you who are not aware of that, which has the largest Dominican diaspora community in the world. Uh, it, but it's also set in Sosua uh, during World War II uh, and for those of you who are not familiar, Sosua was established by uh, um, a group called uh, DORSA, which was the Dominican Republic Settlement Association, which was an outgrowth of the Avion Conference in 1938, where Trujillo agreed to accept up to 100,000 Jews uh, who were under threat by the Nazis. And sadly, only 854 went there among the Mayantinuncles. So I um, spend a lot of time in the DR and I, I, I had this connection to this story and I, I spent the winter in the DR every year. Uh, so long story short, I understood the culture because though Cuba is Cuba and the Dominican Republic is the Dominican Republic, they share a lot of commonalities because they're both Latin Caribbean cultures. Mm -hmm. So I understood the culture. I understood, you know, like her mother said something to me that was so significant the first time we met. We were sitting in the kitchen eating lunch and she says, she says to me that when they arrived in the United States in, um, in January of whatever year it was, 1961, I think, she said, <clears throat> 1962, she said, everything was gray, that Cuba was the opposite, that Cuba is technicolor, it's, it's bright colors. And I understood this because when you, when you live in the Caribbean, and look, Caribbean is a place, great place to visit for a vacation, but if you're in a hotel, you're not visiting the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. you, there's a lot of sensory stuff going on all the time. You see it, you smell it, you hear it, you taste it, you feel it all the time. And I understood immediately what the loss they experienced was when they left Cuba and they came to the United States. It's a very, very hard thing to explain. I hope I did a good job in the book for, for the reader to understand the sense of loss. I mean, I've written about this a lot, you know? I think there's a certain basic sense of loss that goes along with immigration, that, you know, for whatever reason you make this immigration and you're hoping for a better life, but you always pine away for the life that you had in the place you had it. And when you have an opportunity to go back, it's never the same because life goes on there too and things change. So for me, this was a very interesting story that really fit into what it is that I work on and I write about. Again, extra, you know, extraordinary events affecting ordinary people. And it's interesting because a friend of mine, a Dominican guy uh, who lives here in the Heights, his name is Led Black. Uh, he, he and I were having lunch and I told him about the project. And he said to me, he said, frankly, Alan, I can't think of anyone who's more qualified to write this story than you are. Well, I, yeah, I really think, um, you, yes, you did, you did do a great job. And uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book, because, you know, so 
so many of uh, the the Jewish books um, are are not are not set in Latin America. Let let's say that. So you real you really got the the flavor uh, of that Cuban culture in there. You could feel it. You could taste it. Uh, it, it was it was very very powerful. Um, but I'm I I really want to ask um, both of you, and let let's start with Miriam. So interested in. Uh, the collaboration, you know, what was the process? Uh, I know you, you, Miriam, you shared uh, your papers with him and uh, with AJ and he interviewed your parents, but how, you know, was it that you gave it to him and he was finished or were you involved in, in it throughout the writing? How, How did that, how did that, collaboration work? Well, I think there was a lot of back and forth with questions. And um, one interesting thing is that uh, at times AJ would depict uh, the two main men, Moises and Aaron in a certain way. And I would say to him, but that's not what my father or my uncle would have said or done. And he said, these are fictional characters. (laughs) They're based based on your family, but it's fiction. And then I had to keep reminding myself of that. And that's where it comes into what's true and what isn't true about the story. But I did offer to help editing um, the Spanish as well as the English and um, whatever he needed. I would say yes, but mostly he did write it himself. It's his story. And the reason, one of the reasons why it had to be fictional is because there's a 40 year gap, a 39 year gap of radio silence between my father and our family and my uncle's family in Cuba due to politics, somewhat due to personalities, but really mostly due to the embargo and the inability to communicate. And that's where AJ's creativity really comes in to make up a story to take up those years, showing what the Cubans went through, whether or not my family was active in the way he describes the characters, that's a different story. But everybody did feel horrible effects of the communist takeover. Um, and I think he did a great job. So, you know, you, you're bringing up the the effects um, on, on the people who lived there and we all, you know, heard and read reports uh, from and about Cuba. We heard stories about the outdated cars, right? and the suffering of the Cubans under uh, Castro. But I wanted to ask, how was, um, how was communism perceived by the Jews who lived there? And um, how were how they treated? Were they allowed to practice their religion? How were how they treated um, by the Castro? Okay, so let's start with that. There were 15,000 Jews in 1959 just before the revolution and during. And by 1965, 2,400 were left. Mm. The rest had, had fled. 
And today, maybe there's a thousand, if, if that. Mm. Um, the Jews were not persecuted for, the Jude for their Judaism, but rather for living you know, a bourgeois lifestyle. Um, religion was, of course, frowned upon by communism. But somehow, although the institutions were closed, and I just read recently that Christmas was banned in Cuba from 1969 till 1998 when the Pope made his first visit to Cuba. Um, Jewish religion went on quietly. I suppose the shuls, the synagogues were not open or maybe they were open, but it was like under the, how do you say? Um, radar? Yeah, under the radar. Mm -hmm. And the Jews kept all their practices as best as they could without supplies, because during communism, there were no supplies. The embargo caused, you know, no kosher food to be available directly from the US. Things had to come from Canada or from Europe and, the whole system was messed up in that way. So the Jews that were left did the best they could. Um, and the could ones I... that, that left didn't want to live that way. They, they saw the writing on the wall and they, you know, they felt like they were the next generation after leaving Europe. They didn't want to deal with that again, with being uh, second class citizens or no class. And they left as best as they could and started new lives. Mm -hmm. AJ, do you want to say something? Yeah, mm -hmm. I want to add a few things. In addition to uh, Miriam's family, I interviewed nearly 30 other refugees. Oh, that was my next question. Thank you. So, and most of them were Jewish, not all of them. Mm -hmm. All right. And what I was looking for was commonalities. So when you ask about, you know, the status of the Jews under communism, um, as, as Miriam mentioned, and, and it's most important to, to mention that both her parents and others who I spoke to all said the same thing. There was no anti-Semitism or no, no substantive anti-Semitism in Cuba. Mm -hmm. So as an interesting thing, the Cubans did not refer to the Jews as judíos. They referred to them as polacos, which means Poles. That's where they came from. So were there vestigial uh, ideas that were uh, anti-Semitic at its, you know, in, in their basis that went back all the way to the Inquisition? Absolutely. But that was a very long time ago in the, you know, in, in the in the Cuban memory. So in the same way, like today, if you go to the Dominican Republic, there are lots of, of, of of people in Dominican Republic who, who are descended from secret Jews, from conversos. And they have all kinds of odd beliefs about, you know, these people who were quote Jews, uh, but they don't refer to them as judíos. They refer to them as conversos or cristianos nuevos. The, there was no overt, vicious, Nazi-like anti-Semitism in, um, in Cuba, although uh, to be fair, in around the in around 1939, 1940, the Germans did try to stir up some trouble, but that doesn't really fit in with this whole story. So um, when I spoke to people, I, I came to understand something very significant, which frankly led to you know some some reevaluation of my own sort of political worldview. So it seems that 
you know, the, the Jews in Cuba were the victims of their own success. They came to Cuba, they built a community, they built businesses, they did what Jews all over the world do. They go someplace and they help each other to open up stores and factories and they develop a community. They were so successful that they had not only three synagogues, they had country clubs, they had a beach club. I mean, it's pretty marvelous that they had 15,000 community had a beach club. And these were not, you know, cheap places. These were very high-end places. People spent a lot of money on, you know, bar mitzvahs and weddings and homes. They lived very well. Unfortunately, because they were the entrepreneurial class, they became the target of the communist revolution. And that's not to say that there weren't entrepreneurial Cubans who were not Jewish. They also became the target. And what's, what's interesting is that I had a, really an epiphany in the most interesting of places. In September of 2021, I took my son to Hungary to visit where my grandparents came from. And we went to a place in Budapest called the Museum of Terror, which was the brainchild of you know, today's poster child for uh, fascism, Viktor Or Orban, in his attempt to reinterpret Hungarian history. Mm -hmm. Basically, to make a long, dull story short, this, this museum traces the so-called occupation of Hungary from the, over, through the Nazis and the Soviets from 1944 to 1989, when the wall came down. And what I came to realize is that, you see, communism and fascism may have, they do have, completely opposite economic systems. One is hyper-capitalistic and the other one is socialist they share the exact same system of social control. There is no freedom of speech. There's no freedom of thought. There's no freedom to disagree. And that is ultimately what a Jewish community in Cuba could not live with. This, and this, this for us as Jews worldwide, what gives us fertile land is the opportunity to be ourselves, to say and do what we want and what we think and to contribute. The minute we're put in a position where we had to uh, we had to toe the mark, the political line, there's a problem. Now, that's not to say that there were not Jews who were communists. And I had a friend for many years, I lost touch with him, who um, his, his story is very similar. His father came here, but his uncle stayed in Cuba. His uncle was a card-carrying member of the party, and he, had, you know, he was relatively high up in the administration. So this is, while most, the vast majority of Jews did leave, there were those who believed in the system and they stayed. You know, so one of the things I tried to do in telling the story was to try to measure the Marzez character by how well what happened in Cuba after the revolution, how well it served him and his family. And I think that to be honest, and, and remember, I never met the, you know, I never met Miriam's uncle Solomon because he was dead, he died in 2012. Mm -hmm. I only have what I heard about, and I only have what I read about Cuban history and what happened after the revolution. So I had to ask this question, you know, was he satisfied? And, you know, I don't want to be judgmental because that's not an author's job, but I don't think that that character was satisfied. I think in the end, he saw the shortcomings of his, you know, of the system that he, he worked for but at the same time, he wanted to maintain his beliefs in that system, in that it could work. And that's an important part of the story. Can I add something to that? Of course. 
So um, a real part of the book is that um, my father actually, my father invited his brother and wife to the US in 2001 for a fully, you know, fully paid for trip to stay with my parents. Um, and that was a reunion after literally 39 years. And my dad had a lot of questions because there was no communication for those 39 years. Rarely a letter, everything was hard to come by. Um, and at some point my dad couldn't control himself and he actually asked my brother, doesn't he feel like his life was wasted? Uh, and this was really a horrible thing to ask a grown man who had a family, made a life there. Um, he stayed there because of ideology, but we don't know if his ideology changed while he was there. He did suffer as much as other Cubans with hunger, you know, lack of resources, lack of medications. So he, he although he had a good job and was, you know, a partner with the government as everyone is in that kind of system, he suffered a lot, but on the other hand, he had a life. He did have a life. He had the love of his life as his wife, his second wife, and three children. And this caused a lot of difficulty between the two brothers while they were together here in the U.S. It was resolved, but it was a difficult time. Did he, did he answer the question? No, no. My, my uncle was very quiet. He rarely spoke about his experience. He told me a few tidbits about how hungry they were during the special period when the Russian government, when Russian communism collapsed and how much weight they all lost and how they couldn't get medication for my first cousin, his son, who's a diabetic. Uh, but other than that, he, he kept quiet and I, I feel that's because of the way the system was with people always listening in and reporting on you and it becomes a habit not to talk about it and just to smile and make the best of la lucha, the struggle of daily life. Uh, that's what they call it, la lucha. La in Cuba today also, la lucha means a struggle, the war. Struggles. So let's let's since you were talking about the the brothers, what is your responsibility to your siblings? You know what one of the, what what is a family? Are you are you your brother's keeper? Um, the you know I think that these are uh, some of the questions, uh, at least that came to my mind uh, in re in reading the book. So. Um, May I? Yeah. Um, Meryl, that's why I named them Moises and Aron. Uh-huh. Okay. I felt that Jewish readers would pick up on that. And uh, it, it, look, to me, I've written extensively on the relationship between brothers. That's kind of been a central theme to my work. It's, I, I write about uh, the, the relationship that men have with men in terms of brothers and friends. I write about fathers and sons. And um, I, I think that this, this story in particular, you know, it really does beg this question, you know, what is my responsibility without giving away too much because 
you know, I do want people to read the book. Um, you know, there's this big moral question that, that occurs twice in, in rapid succession for each side. And I think that we all have to ask ourselves, and it's just not brothers and brothers, it's, it, it can be, you know, a brother and a sister, it could be a friend, it could be almost any relationship. You know, what do we do when someone else is in need of our help? Do we risk our own well-being? And, you know, having written extensively about the Holocaust, I think that that is one of the most important questions. And I, I don't know uh, if, if either of you or any of our listeners have seen it, but there was, uh, there was a show that was just, we just finished watching my wife and I, it's called uh, Small Something or Other. It's, it's the story of Anne Frank from Patel. Oh yes, I a meet, small light, a uh, meat yeah. beads, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's really, you know, sort of where this comes down. You know, are, are, are you as a person willing to risk your life to save someone else's. And, you know, it's a question that I, uh, as someone who's named after two men who were murdered in the Holocaust, and, you know, over a hundred family members of my family uh, died in the camps. I, I ask this question all the time. What would I have done had I been in, on, in any position there? And I have to believe that I was raised to do the right thing. And I, you know, I'd also like to say that you know there are a lot of people who they like to read about the Holocaust, and that's good because we write a lot about the Holocaust, and people need to know about it. I'm not suggesting that the experience of Jews in Cuba was the same as the experience of Jews in Germany or Poland or anywhere during the war, but this is yet one more example of what can happen to us and why we need to be vigilant, especially today that it's very easy to say it can't happen here. The truth is that it can in one form or another happen anywhere. So we need to be able to ask ourselves, will I stand up and do the right thing when the time comes? Well, I can add to that, that I was raised to know that I must have my passport in order at all times. Mm. Although my parents made a wonderful life here, they struggled for many years, but they became professionals in this country starting from scratch and belonged to a wonderful Jewish community, which they still do in Brooklyn. There's a tenuousness. We, we don't know what's gonna happen next. And we, you know, like you have a go bag on Long Island in case there's a, the, the next big storm. I, I've always got my passport ready. I'm ready to go to Israel or wherever I need to go if things turn sour. And there is a vigilance about that. You know, let me add something very interesting to that, that that is a very, very um, common, if not uh, well-documented uh, sort of subconscious reaction to situations like uh, that, that, that which Miriam's family experienced. Uh, I interviewed a woman who lives in Prague, who did not find out that she, she's, she's in her 60s, and she didn't find out that she was Jewish until she was nearly 20 years old and her mother finally told her. And she always wondered why her mother kept a, a packed suitcase in the closet by the front door. And ultimately, when she demanded to know why, that's when the mother told her that, you know, her mother and her grandmother had been deported to Terezin and they had survived the war, but she never knew when it would happen again. So the idea that you know your, your passports, your papers should be in order is a very important thing. 
I think, you know, and it's interesting because there was, you know, a small aliyah uh, that occurred among the Jews that remained in Cuba in the 1990s to Israel. But I, I think that we live in a world today, and I can never stress how important this is, where we have Israel, and Israel is the escape hatch if, if things get to that point. We have somewhere to go. In the past, we didn't. You know, today we do. So while that's a, a, of some comfort to us, yes, our, our vigilance is uh, probably well recommended. So, you know, the, besides being a sibling story, the uh, Miriam story is also essentially uh, an immigration story. How, how oh, yeah. this story resonated with readers? Sorry? How has this story resonated with readers, the, the immigration story? It's resonated very strongly. Um, you know, people, uh, people I, I should, you know, for full disclosure, I run several beta groups. I'm sure you do the same thing, Meryl. When you write a book, you know, I, there is, it comes in stages and I have several beta groups who read it as the, as the book is developed. Right. And the, the response on, uh, this story has been everything from I had no idea to wow, it's so like the situation we're faced with today. So yes, um, it's a lot like what we're faced with today. And, and, and the question becomes, you know, again, it doesn't have to be your brother. It could be a total stranger. Are you going to open the door? You know, immigration is an enormous question in this country today. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone who comes knocking on the door should necessarily be let in, but I think that we need to, uh, we need to be, show a little more Rahmanis. You know, we, we need to show more mercy and understanding of people. And I'm hoping that this story, because it's told in a slightly different way, will prod people to think about how they view the needs of those who have to leave where they, you know, their homelands and find a new home. It's not, that's a terrible thing to be faced with, you know. I can tell you from personal experience of many people that I've spoken to from all kinds of walks of life that that is a very tough thing. I um, had a conversation with uh, two neighbors of mine the other day, and one of them comes from a family that was uh, exiled from Anatolian. The, from, from Turkey, Anatolian Greece, uh, at the time of just after World War One, and the story of her grandmother is harrowing, and her husband's mother was uh, a refugee after the um, uh, what do they call that in China? The um, there was that uh, the revolution. There was not just the revolution, but in in the, the Cultural Revolution in 1960, she had been. Uh, wrongly accused of being, you know, anti-revolutionary, she was sent to a labor camp and then ultimately escaped. So, you know, should they not have been given the opportunity to come here and build new lives? Of course they should be given that opportunity. I think we need to think a little bit more about what, prob what prompts someone to, what propels them to make a journey, to change their lives like that. It's, it's not to collect welfare. So that's me, I'll get off the, the soapbox now. <laughs> okay, you want to, um, we're, we, our time is, is running short now. Do you want to uh, tell us uh, where people can find you online and buy the book? Yeah, that's really easy. So you can buy the book. Primarily, I sell my books on Amazon. So go to Amazon and you can search either A.J. Sidransky, in which case all my books will come up, 
or incident at San Miguel, uh, or you can go to my website, www.ajsidransky.com. That's A-J-S-I-D-R-A-N-S-K-Y. Feel free to look around the website. And if you go to the incident at San Miguel page, there's a buy button and that'll take you directly to Amazon where you could buy it. Uh, we also sell on Barnes and Noble, Smashbooks, Kobo, the usual. Uh, I will tell you that uh, uh, if you want to get it in the library, go to the library and ask them to order it. Uh, if you want to, um, if you want to get it through Barnes and Noble, we have it at Barnes and Noble. Lastly, I should add that uh, I am happy to, if you have a book club, I am happy to meet with you by Zoom or in person if you are within 60 minutes of New York City. And I'll drive out to meet with you. Or we can do a Zoom and I'm happy to do, you know, I do that for free for book clubs. If you represent an organization, it may not be free. So, uh, but it won't be exorbitant. Uh, and I do, um, I can also say, uh, you know, uh, that in certain circumstances for organizational events, I think Miriam would, you'll make yourself available, Miriam? Yes, I'd be happy to join because I'm the living witness. <laughs> so that's where you can find us. And again, that's www.ajsidransky.com or just go to Amazon. And I also love readers to get in touch with me, aj at ajsidransky.com. Love your comments. Happy to explain anything you might be confused about. Hey, thank you. Miriam, is there anything you would like to add? Yeah, I'd like to add that I wasn't sure how my family would react to the book because it is fiction. And my mother just recently, she'd been ill for a while and wasn't up to reading, but recently she was able to read that whole, the whole book. And she actually wrote AJ um, an email saying that it made her laugh, it made her cry, just like my visit with her to Cuba did, which was uh, a bunch of years ago. Um, she said it really reminded her of her actual experiences during that time and during the time in the US as well. So although it is fiction, it is very true to life. And by the way, I have to stress again, Meryl, her parents are just the most wonderful people. I'm seeing them tomorrow, I can't wait. Wow. Wow. Well, it's it's a very uh, different, uh, compelling uh, read. I, I recommend it. It's, it's a great book. And I thank you both for joining us today, A.J. Sidransky and Miriam Abrahams. The book is Incident at San Miguel. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Meryl Ain, the author of the post-Holocaust novel, The Takeaway Men. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, is now available. For more information about my writing, visit me at merylain.com. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. Until next time, join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book. <laughs>